It's the most important thing to me about the arts because all of the arts are for everyone, no matter what you think your natural ability is, which only gets the door open if you have natural ability. It's your passion for it. Hello and welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with Suzanne Pomerantseff who is a dancer and a dance instructor, dance teacher, who has an amazing history here in Pinellas County and in St. Petersburg. And I have met many, many dancers who attribute their success and their ability and being able to collaborate and present beautiful work on stage and with each other to studying with you. Two people who come to mind, Helen French and Marquise Floyd. Helen is a, a dancer who has really established herself in her career, and Marquise is an up-and-coming dancer. But I was wondering if there are others that you might want to talk about who you've been a seminal influencer for. Well, one that comes to mind is Calvin Royal, who is a soloist with American Ballet Theater. He and Misty Colpin are making history because they are dancing together both as African-American dancers. They're dancing the second most important role in the ballet Harlequinade in California. And besides Misty and Brooklyn Mack, who's also African-American, dancing a guest spot for Washington Ballet, this is history for American Ballet Theater to have two African-Americans partnering each other in a major role, in a major performance. And so Calvin... Calvin Royal. And so you taught him here. Yes. And who else have you taught here who has gone on? Eric Wadner, who went on to San Francisco Ballet. Maureen Horrigan was my first, and as an 18-year-old, she flew to Frankfurt, Germany and became a dancer with the Frankfurt Opera Ballet. Uh, Lucia Hutchins was a dancer with the Kiel Opera Ballet Company in Germany. Amos Oliver, who performed on the live Hairspray. Ephraim Sykes, who is well noted on Broadway now. He's done just about every Broadway show you could imagine. Sir Brock Warren, who is opening in a brand new show in California. Well, there's two things I sort of want to point out about this. The list is incredible. It goes on and on and on. A list of people who came up through your program, either at Gibbs or at your studio, but also that you know what each one of them is doing. You are connected to them over the years. I think that happens because in order to be a really good teacher, you have to be passionate about what it is that you're doing. And I'm passionate about the arts and I'm passionate about dance. It's not like you look at a child and say, oh, that one's going to be a professional dancer. Because as they train, they reveal themselves. You can see the gift. You can see the sensibility that the arts mean something to them. But you don't know if they're going to be able to take the steps or the movements or learn the choreography or be musical as you're training them. And so they become very close to your heart. And Calvin performed at the Straws Center. And so it's the first time I'm getting to see him perform professionally. And he danced for me. So when he's dancing up on the stage, I'm dancing again. And since the actual act of dancing is what I'm passionate about, it feels like I got that professional career through my kids. 
Mm-hmm. And that's and they give back to me all the time. They constantly keep in touch with me and tell me what they're doing that's new and exciting. And they tell me in a way that tells me that they still care about what I'm doing now. So it, it's a different relationship than if I just turned out a professional dancer and said, okay, you're ready to go. Goodbye. You said when you're training them, you don't know. You know, like many, many people in in my generation and in my gender, I took dance class as a kid. And I will tell you that the teacher said they knew. And they looked at this person and said, you will be. And they looked at me and said, you won't be. And somebody else and said, I don't even know why you're here. You know, and and maybe we were six, maybe we were 10. What you said is actually, as I heard it, seems much more true. You don't know. So you have to be there as a teacher present for the student where the student is. And I think that's probably rare. I think that comes from the way I was trained. No one expected me to be a dancer when I was little because I was very ill with rheumatic fever and was in bed and didn't know how to walk anymore, couldn't step upstairs. But I told the whole world I was going to be a ballerina. And I'm sure they thought I was a little nuts. <laughs> but my mom was a believer. And in the you know late 40s and early 50s, to entertain a child that's super sick like that at home, she created stories for me and invented a mobile that hung over my head and told me about Alicia Alonzo, who was also in bed at that time because she had detached retinas, that she practiced her ballets with her fingers on the bedspread. And as a six-year-old, I thought to myself, well, if she can do it, then I can do it too. I've never seen a ballet. I just felt inside of me that I had to speak the music. And my first teacher was a very kind teacher. She was a ballerina herself, so she was still performing. So she didn't have that long history of working with children. Mm -hmm. So all the kids that were in front of her, she believed in them. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to California, and I went to an okay school, mainly teachers from Hollywood. So they weren't real skilled in ballet, which is what I wanted. And then we moved to San Francisco, and I got into San Francisco Ballet. And there you get the teaching that you're talking about. Teachers are distant. I had the perfect little body that looked like a gorgeous dancer on the outside. I had the artistry inside, but my body didn't work. I didn't have extension. I didn't have turnout. We didn't know at that point that I was born with a back defect that Mm. was going to prevent me from pushing my body where a dancer's body at that time had to go. And I think along the way, I used to think I would be a better dancer if I could ask questions or if I could talk to my teacher. And you didn't then. Your body either did it or it didn't do it. You either made it as a dancer or you didn't. So when my own body really undermined me and I became a teacher, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to talk to them and they're going to talk to me Mm -hmm. and we're going to find this path going forward. I have had lots of dancers with perfect bodies. They don't often go on and be professionals because it doesn't mean anything to them in the same way. You think, oh, if you have this perfect body, you must want to be a dancer. But the inside has to be there.
So what is the perfect body? Uh, nowadays, it's someone who has ligaments and tendons that stretch yards long so that you can take your leg and wrap it around your neck. Mm-hmm. You're athletic, you're thin, you're long-legged, beautiful long arms, but that's just a body that dances in space. And I think this has been a discussion for probably the last 20 years, is where's the artistry? I don't want to go to a performance and see a factory, a computer-generated dancer that every dancer looks exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I want to come and see an artist. It's like Nureyev and Baryshnikov and Fontaine. You went to see a specific dancer because you were moved by how they danced. So what made them artists? I think it's having the compulsive need to say something about a subject that you can't use words for. Sometimes it's saying the joy that a piece of music brings inside of you that just makes you want to explode with joy or passion, but there isn't words for that. The body moving in space becomes an instrument in the orchestra, and that feeling that you want to move someone else's heart and soul. and. If you can't do it as a performer, then I feel you should be doing it as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And that you bring them to see that those plies and tendus and that struggle to find turnout and point your feet and stretch your muscles has something to say. It's not just exercising. It's not a sport. We are definitely an art. You mentioned that your your body failed you. I went to the University of Utah as a ballet major, a ballet performance major. San Francisco at that time was under the direction of the Christensen brothers, and there's three of them. Two of them were at San Francisco Ballet. One is the artistic director of the company, and one is the director of the school. And the other brother was running the ballet department at the University of Utah and Utah Civic Ballet. Mm-hmm. And so the feeling was I needed four years more mm. of training and growing up and trying to look like I was older than 12. I looked about nine and a half when I was 17. My senior year there, you had to take a PE class to graduate from college, even though you're a dance major and you're dancing every day for hours and hours and hours. They made you take a PE class. And in this PE class, the teacher gave something that was very off balance and my back grabbed. Oh my God. And it went into a spasm and the spasm wouldn't go away. So I went to an orthopedic and he basically said I was never gonna dance again. The whole department met and fortunately for me, one of the teachers that I'd had as a 13 year old all the way through San Francisco Ballet was a teacher now at the university. And she was the hardest one on me, the meanest one to me. But she knew that I might learn to rely on being little and sweet looking and young looking and not reach my potential. So she was the one that pushed my potential. And I was always afraid of her, but I met her expectations because I was afraid of her. And she's the one that spoke up for me. And she said, she truly is an artist. And that's the first time anybody had ever called me an artist because you didn't use that word back then. And she said to the committee, I think she could go on to teach dance. I think she could go on to be a lab notator and write down the dances. She's a good writer. I think she could be a dance critic or write books or teach dance history. And she said, I think that we need to let her graduate. Mm. So they did. 
Meanwhile, my family moved to St. Petersburg uh -huh. from California, and my father was the one who turned Mount Park Hospital into Bayfront Medical Center. So he had access to the best doctors that were available. So he had an orthopedic, Dr. Look at Me, who was the one who invented hip operations, which for dancers are a godsend now. They found out that I was born with this defect. Oh the bottom of my spine near my tailbone is fractured into many shards of bone. And what happened when I went off balance is the muscles got tangled inside of the bone. Oh. And that's why they couldn't release. So it took a lot of physical therapy and mind over matter. I said, well, if I was born with this, then obviously when I dance, I'm not hurting it. It was already there. He said, oh, yeah, you can go back to dancing if you can stand the pain. I was like, okay, that's all I needed. And I went back to dancing. And in order to have the time to recuperate, my father suggested that Lester Jacobson, who was my private teacher here, quite a famous man in this area for dance, we started our own studio. And I thought I was going to teach for two years, get myself back in shape, and then I was going to go do my dream, which was to go and audition for companies and be a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen. So why didn't it happen? Because little ones get their fingers around your heart. Ah. And when you see them falling in love with something that you fall in love with, you just can't walk away. And Lester was an excellent, excellent advanced teacher. But I was the one that had the heart for the little ones. And I was young. I was only 21 years old. So I, I just... I couldn't leave right away. Something happened that shoved me into the teaching, and you just never know when bad things happen to you. You never know that that's the thing that might be opening the door that's the right way for you to go. So I was a little frustrated. I still wanted to go and dance professionally, so I thought, okay, I'll go back to the University of Utah and get my master's degree. And in order to get your master's degree in performance, you had to audition for the company, and then you would do your graduate program as you worked with the company, and you might also be teaching some classes at the university. Well, when I went, the director of the program who knew me, because I'm now only two years out of graduating from college, wasn't there, and he knew what my aspiration was. And I got a letter when I came back to St. Petersburg that said, thank you very much for your recent audition. The committee didn't feel you were quite ready. You need to have more performance experience, and we would like you to audition again. And I'm thinking, they all trained me. Whatever yeah. performance experience I had or was given was them giving it to me. It made me so mad. I said, okay. The people who trained me don't want me. I'm going to teach and I'm going to be the best teacher in the world and I'm going to send my students everywhere and no one will ever tell them that they don't have enough performing experience. Oh. And that's how St. Petersburg Ballet came about. Wow. It's a non-professional student company that performs everywhere, does tours in the schools, etc. And with that one statement, when I look back from the age I am now and look back 50 years, that made it possible for all those kids to dance. What if I had gone to be a professional dancer and the studio didn't exist and I didn't exist as a teacher? There wasn't anything professional going on in St. Petersburg. And now there's hundreds of dancers, of artists, who didn't know they were artists when they were little that are performing. And where was that located? Uh, it's first... <laughs> Its first location was in the St. Petersburg Garden Club. We rented a room twice a week. 
We had two bars, a little portable telephone record player, two records, and two students. I had a nine-year-old that I was responsible for teaching, and then we had a student that had studied from Lester quite a long time, and she was 14, so Lester taught her. And then someone's a friend of Lester's studio had burned down in Brandon, and she asked us to come twice a week to teach her ballet students until she had time to rebuild. And that gave us enough income and students to rent a small place. We rented a little hallway and a little strip shop, then moved to a little bit bigger. And then we went to First Avenue South near Pasadena, and that was our school from 1976 to 2001. Mm -hmm. And now we're located on First Avenue North because we outgrew the one classroom, and we have three classrooms now. Wow. And how many teachers? There's Marsha Wilson, Michelle Kusala, Danny Johnson, and myself. So we have four teachers. And how many students? About 100. 25, somewhere around there. That's incredible. And it's a nonprofit. Yes. And we're only a ballet studio. We only teach ballet and character. During the summer, we have jazz and modern, but we're basically a classical ballet school, whereas most schools have tap and jazz and modern and sometimes acrobatics and all of that. And we chose right from the beginning to focus on classical ballet because that was mine and Lester's love. So they have to really want the discipline of the ballet to want to come to us. You have another whole parallel teaching career. You were at Gibbs. Yep, at and, the Pinellas was, County Center for the Arts at Gibbs was, High School. Right, from the very beginning, you were one yes. of the, you, were, you created the dance program there, if I understand um, it correctly. Mr. Yates was the first department chair, and my very first year, I was just an adjunct. But from the second year on, I was full-time, and he left the program after the first five years, and I took over the department chairmanship. So I was, 25 years, I was the department chair. It, it's kind of like the fame high school in the famous movie, right? But it's it's in it's our fame high school down here. It's funny because we all thought of it as fame in the beginning and we imagined ourselves dancing on the cafeteria tables. But Gibbs High School doesn't have good strong cafeteria tables. It would have been a disaster. I think we started with 27 students in the dance program, and we started with freshmen and sophomores. And five of the freshmen were my personal students from the community. So we started with some strong dancers. Most of the others had just had a little training in local dance studios and stuff, but they were chosen because they had that aptitude and they wanted to be there. And then we just shaped the program. And my personal philosophy as a teacher is that Every single student that stands in front of me, I teach them as if they're going to be professional. So that when they get to the point that they want to make that decision, they're not going, whoops, I should have paid attention to my training back when I was six and seven. They have the training that they need to make the choice. And then if they want to go on and be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a mother, a business owner, they also have the discipline and the skill to look to a goal and accomplish it. So the program did what the county didn't think it was going to do. It did it in every division because every one of the arts teachers had that same philosophy. So we were turning out dancers. 
people wanting to make the long trip to Gibbs at 4.30 in the morning, which is when the buses pick them up if they're not living in St. Pete, and to work as hard as they need to do and to stay after school, be there on weekends. So it's a tough program to go to, but it got its reputation because we all believed in the students. It is a professional development program for artists. Yes. And when I've spoken to Gibbs students, whether they were in performing arts or visual arts, it was very formative. For, yes. And I think part of the formativeness is who you are that you can get on a school bus at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> yes, I think so too. It's also a test because my feeling is, is why go to high school and then go on to college and major in something that you're not sure you want to do? So in high school, we created that professional atmosphere, that professional expectation with all the academics on top of it. And almost all the kids are in AP or honor classes and they're rehearsing and doing things on their own. And many of them belong to outside groups. So there were very talented kids who decided not to go on in the arts. They loved it and they've kept it as a part of their lives, but they knew they didn't really want to live that way. To be an artist, you have to be a gypsy. You have to be okay with not knowing where the next job might be or where the next paycheck may be. That self-discipline is really important. And I think that had been shoved onto the colleges. And many colleges have really good, strong arts programs. But what if you end at the end of four years and that's not what you're going to do with your life? So Mm -hmm. I think the magnet programs have a really strong reason for existing. Helen French mentioned to me, and Helen is an amazing dancer who has had a very successful professional career, that her love of collaborating and working with other artists she attributes directly to you. We really believed in bringing in guest artists to teach or to create a piece of choreography to expose the kids more to what the professional world is about. Helen was one of the first Claire's that I had at Nutcracker that we decided to collaborate. We took what I was doing in the community with St. Petersburg Ballet and put it together with the Gibbs program because we hadn't thought yet to do such big performances that would draw the community in. This community still doesn't really get to see the performances at school because it's very hard to publicize a school performance and let people know that it really is like a professional performance. We did 14 performances of Nutcracker. Mm. We did public performances at night and on the weekend, and every single day during the week, we did a performance for school children all over Pinellas County. Well, that's what started bringing people in because I had theater people who were actors in the first scene. I had the dancers. They got to see the tech people putting on the show and creating the sets and the costuming. And one time we did a performance at Mahaffey and the orchestra played because many of Florida orchestra members are adjunct teachers at PCCA and the choir sang Snow. So you go to the performance and you saw all the arts put together and then we would do a visual art display out in the lobby. And then we started doing tours within the school system to attract kids because unless somebody exposes you to the arts, you don't know that you're in love with it. A kid who sits there and just doodles in his notebook during class doesn't know that he could possibly be a visual artist unless somebody exposes you Mm -hmm. to that. So that was the purpose and that's how all the crossover came from. Mm -hmm. It just, it was like one big happy family. I wish I could have gone to that. (laughs) I wish there'd been a school like that for me because I was the only dancer in Redwood High School. 
We just started a new program at the Academy. It's been a part of the Academy in a silent way for almost from the very beginning. We started an adaptive ballet program. Mm. And over the 50 years that the studio has existed, I've welcomed everybody. And that includes kids with disabilities or differing abilities. And I received a $1,000 grant from the state of Florida to help start the program anew. I've always blended my dancers that had special needs into my regular program. And I'd never really thought of having a separate class for them until a grandparent came to me and asked if I would start something special, particularly for Down syndrome and autistic kids. I've had both in the studio. I've had a little girl with cerebral palsy. My favorite of my memories is a little girl named Caitlin. She had a disease that hardened her body piece by piece. Mm. And when I got her, all she could do was move her eyes and one finger to run her wheelchair. She performed in our Nutcrackers. She danced with us, did our summer intensive, challenged my creativity to the death. I went to Boston Ballet, which has an adaptive program, a very strong one that they've had for years. I took their course along with Danny Johnson, one of my teachers, with the intent to start a special class. And it started with a little girl who's nine years old. She's in a wheelchair and she's paralyzed from the waist down and is in love with dance. Has the most beautiful arms that I've ever seen on a little girl. Everything is expressive. She grins from ear to ear for the whole entire hour. Right now she's all by herself. We're adding a little girl who has visual problems. And I already have several kids who have autism. And Allie, who did one of the murals on the front of our building, was one of my students when she was little. And she was academically challenged, but artistically amazing. So I just wanted to say that dance really is for everybody. I have adult students who always wanted to dance when they were younger and never had a chance that are doing it now. And one of them asked me the other night, um, do you think an adult can ever go on point? I said, why not? <laughs> we're not waiting for your bones to mature. <laughs> why not? Right. So it's the most important thing to me about the arts. All of the arts are for everyone no matter what you think your natural ability is, which only gets the door open if you have natural ability, it's your passion for it. And that everybody should experience them as a way of expressing the inner you. Wow. That's one of the discussions nowadays, is ballet really still have the right to exist? Because it's known as, you know, the white European elitist thing that only, you know, people who are wealthy go and do. It's not for common man. You can't understand the ballets. They're all fairy tales, etc. But that's not true anymore. We're using all of the steps and all of the traditional training to create a complete dancer, bringing in very, very different choreographers working in very different mediums and somebody like Calvin who has a background in many different forms of dancers and Marquise too I mean he's dancing with the bad boys of ballet and he can do it all he's a choreographer he can do modern he's a beautiful ballet dancer 
all of those rich things he's bringing. So the dancers that are being trained now, it's my job as a teacher to make sure I'm teaching them for today's job, today's arts, not the way I was trained. So I have to keep learning in order to open up their bodies to be able to dance with anyone. I have to admit, I was getting the chills a little bit when you were talking. I had this sense of sort of an opening, a flowering of dance and dance arts. You know, if you were ballet, what was it? The black tights and the pink leotard or the pink tights and the, I mean, pink you know. Pink tights, just, black leotard, I, hair it, in a bun. It was this way or, or, or yes. no way. And then modern dance was like another silo over here and this sort of coming together to create something that is both connected to the traditions, mm-hmm. but also expanding on them. That was what you were describing. And I'm sort of having pictures of performances that I've been to that I've seen that and how breathtaking they are. It's almost like we've been waiting for that. Yes, I think so, because I was a very anti-modern person. First of all, I was trained only in classical ballet. At San Francisco Ballet, you didn't wear heels because it overdeveloped your calf muscles. You didn't ride horses because it ruined your turnout. You didn't play tennis because it overdeveloped one side of your body. The only sports you could do were fencing, swimming, and ice skating. Mm. Those things were allowed because they contributed to it. I was in love with the fairy tale worlds. I think um, Margot Fontaine is a really good example of how I saw an artist, one who just dedicated, focused, working all the time on the way the human body moves. But then I also saw the blossoming of, you saw the younger ones moving a slightly different way, making different choices. Baryshnikov and Nureyev helped to push that rigidity away because they each had a different way of expressing a role that was centuries old. And then when I got to Gibbs, okay, here I am, Miss Bunhead, and the head of the department is a modern dancer and an African dancer. And I sat in his class the first day and my world changed because within a month of my five little precious ballerinas being in his modern class and still studying ballet, I saw a change. I saw a change in what their bodies could humanly do because ballet doesn't develop your upper body. Modern does. Ballet wants you to suck in your stomach, but it doesn't develop your abs. It does now, but it didn't back then. Modern did that. Modern pushed your flexibility, pushed your lines. And I started to see that there were openings, ways of expressing themselves that I never really observed up close. Plus the music he used was mainly classical music or we had a drummer. It just opened up my whole world. And from that point on, I realized how equally a dancer needs to be trained. I can't break the rules. You can't break the rules until you know the rules. So I teach how to follow the rules And then my job as a teacher is, oh, you don't have the turnout. You can't make that perfect fifth. This is how we're going to make your fifth and make that support them and make it support the arabesques and the attitudes and the pirouettes because it's a human body moving in space. And it's like having a piece of pottery that's constantly moving and your hands are shaping the way that image comes out. And that's exciting to be a teacher. Lester gave me the best line I could ever pass on to anyone else who wants to teach. The minute you think you know it all, stop teaching. 
And that's always been my mantra. What do I need to know new? And I think that's why the kids keep coming back to me because Marquise teaches for me now when he's in between shows. And I watch his classes and I listen to his philosophy and I look at the way he makes the body move. And yes, he's following the classical rules in classical ballet, but he's asking something more. Movement around the back, shoulders moving, arms expanding, lines that aren't rigidly lined up with something. They're natural to the human body he's working with. Mm -hmm. Okay, then that becomes my legacy. Thank you so much for sharing that legacy with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. I've been here with Suzanne Pomerantzak, a dancer and a teacher, and I've also discovered a philosopher about the arts. Thank you, Suzanne, so very much. Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.